You are now listening to episode 24 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hull and Thomas Costelli here today with CEO and founder of RealCrowd, Adam Hooper. Prior to founding RealCrowd, Adam had worked on over $1 billion worth of real estate transactions with a wide spectrum of real estate professionals, including sponsors, lenders, investors, developers, and institutional clients. This experience led him to conclude that current real estate practices are rife with inefficiencies and in need of a major technological overhaul, and hence, RealCrowd was born. RealCrowd is a crowdfunding platform that provides investors access to private commercial real estate investments, and since 2013, RealCrowd has built up one of the largest private investment platforms with over 20,000 members and has provided access to over $4.5 billion in commercial real estate investments. Before we jump right into today's episode, we want to let everyone know about our new virtual workshops. Each week, we will host an interactive workshop that puts you in a room with one of our tax strategists and fellow real estate investors. We will discuss a topic and then open the room up for questions. This is the perfect opportunity to get answers to those real estate tax questions that you've been dying to ask. And at the same time, discover what other real estate investors are asking. You could sign up for these virtual workshops by visiting therealestatecpa.com or following the link in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's get right into today's show. So Adam, thanks for coming on the show today. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your real estate background and how you got involved in the crowdfunding space? Yeah, thanks for for having me. Glad we can do uh, back-to-back episodes here. We're excited to be on the show today. So yeah, I got my real estate start probably 14, 15 years ago in Central Oregon uh, doing brokerage. So all commercial brokerage, uh, you know, small enough market that we got to do a little bit of everything. So leasing, sales, tenant rep, uh, you know, all, all different sides of the of the business. Did that for a number of years and then split off to start my own firm where we did a lot of single tenant net lease sales across the country. Started learning a little bit more about the capital market side of that, how those deals were getting financed, how they're getting funded. Started getting into some of the joint venture equity pieces for, you know, preferred developers and Walgreens and FedEx build the suits and, and that. Uh, you know, segment of the market, and then had the opportunity to start up a joint venture equity team with a, a brokerage house in, in Sacramento, um, where we went down there and, and helped build up that team, focused mostly on sourcing and structuring joint venture equity for institutional deals, uh, you know, asset level acquisitions and recaps. Was doing that, and then you know, mid 2012, the Jobs Act had had just been passed, Indiegogo, Kickstarter, and a lot of the kind of rewards and donations-based crowdfunding platforms were starting to crop up and get a lot of uh, excitement and interest. And when we started reading through the, the regs and the Jobs Act, you know, we saw this piece that allowed for publicly advertising these private deals. And it just kind of clicked of, you know, why can't we take a similar mechanism to what we're seeing on these other platforms that are donations-based and leverage the internet as a distribution channel for capital raising, essentially? And so that was the, the genesis of it was, you know, is there a more efficient way of doing what I was doing very much one-on-one, right? A lot of the, the syndicators that are, are probably listening to the show, um, it's, you know, it's hand-to-hand combat, <laughs> trying to raise capital and, and syndicating. 
And so the, the initial premise was, can we build a technology platform that brings you know, massive efficiency to just the mechanics of syndicating equity and then leverage this new regulatory environment where you can use the internet as a distribution channel? And that was really the birth of, of what we're doing at, uh, at Real Crowd. And you know, we're almost six years into this, which is kind of crazy. But uh, it's been a, a pretty good run, and, and I think you know there's still a lot more, a lot more for the space to grow into. And I'm sure we'll probably touch on a few things today that you know we're excited to be seeing on the horizon and, and kind of how the space has matured since uh, early days six long years ago. So what Real Crowd does, and what crowdfunding does in general, is it connects investors with syndicators, with the sponsors of the deal itself, and yeah. it allows them to connect virtually rather than having to say meet in person or or something along those lines. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's it's all about access for us. The ability for real estate managers to access a, a pool of investors that they couldn't get access to before. And then the ability for investors that are looking at this asset class, you know, probably have some fundamental understanding that real estate is a good thing, but they just don't have access to these investment opportunities. So it's really about creating that marketplace where managers can reach investors and investors can reach you know, products all around the country and, and really have an opportunity to build a, a more diversified portfolio. Fascinating. So do you have like a minimum investment requirement for limited? I'm, I'm assuming that these would be limited partners coming in on these syndications. Is there like a minimum investment requirement? Yeah. So it's the the manager themselves sets the minimum investment. Typically, we're seeing them these days somewhere between 25 and 50,000 minimum. Um, we've seen them down to as low as five or 10,000. Some of the funds that we've seen have been upwards of, uh, you know, 100,000. So we don't have a requirement on real crowd to set a minimum at a certain level. It's really up to the to each individual real estate manager as to where they set that minimum investment. And that kind of differs from like uh, I think it's like a fund rise or high rise where they the minimum is like five hundred bucks or a thousand bucks. So talk about why you let the managers kind of set their own minimum investment requirements. Yeah, and and so the bigger topic there is just how are platforms set up structurally, right? So a lot of the platforms in the space. Um, they operate under what we would consider kind of an aggregator model. So they're going to form an LLC for every deal that they do. As an investor, you're going to come in and invest in you know, crowdfunding company 75 LLC. And then that crowdfunding company is actually acting as a principal to deploy that capital, whether it's as a loan or you know, mezzanine piece or, or joint venture equity. So as an investor, you don't really have a relationship with the underlying real estate manager. And you don't necessarily have a direct security, you know, you don't have a, an asset backed by what you're investing in, right? You're investing in a crowdfunding LLC and not the actual asset itself. So that's how a lot of the space works. Um, the one that you mentioned, and we've seen a couple other platforms do it, where they've now got um, their own kind of non-traded REIT vehicles, which again is a fine strategy, right? But I think it all comes down to manager selection there. So with our vision initially, we wanted to try to bring efficiency to capital raising, right? Not, not add a layer in between, but to see how can we provide a more transparent, efficient way for managers to raise capital and for investors to access, right? So we didn't feel that adding a layer in between, obfuscating that relationship, you know, fees, right? Obviously, anytime you're, you're adding a, a layer, you're adding fees, right? So on, on RealCrowd, it's all direct investing. So an investor comes on, they can choose from you know, their menu of deals. And when they make that investment, it's actually with the real estate manager themselves, in whatever entity they're forming to acquire that asset or in the underlying funds, they're coming in directly as a limited partner in that investment vehicle, not in a, an LLC that we form 
and you know, again, all the, the fees associated with that. So trade-off there is as a manager in our model, you you know, you have a, a relationship with each investor. So does that create an additional paperwork burden? Yeah. Right. I mean, you're, you're dealing with individual K1s versus having one LP on your cap table, essentially. But most of the groups that we work with value those relationships, right? They want to have that connection with the investor and in real estate. At the end of the day, you know, as much as we can augment with technology, it's still a relationship business. And so that's more of the sponsors that we attract is you groups that, that want to have that relationship with the investors. And again, just a much more kind of lightweight, efficient, transparent way for us to run our company without the overhead of, of running the real estate operations side too. Does anybody have to be accredited or do the managers get to decide if they have any sophisticated slots? So how we operate is that it does all have to be accredited. The regulatory change with the JOBS Act that allowed for advertising publicly changed the regulations from historically how it was done. So the, the prior to the JOBS Act of 2012, you could have you know, unlimited number of accredited and up to 35 sophisticated but non-accredited, right? So that was a true private placement, not advertising. Uh, that still exists. What the the jobs I created was the ability to advertise these private placements, what's called making a general solicitation. And when you do that, it removes that 35 sophisticated investor limit and everybody does have to be accredited. And not only do you have to be accredited, but you actually have to go through what the SEC was kind enough to define as quote unquote reasonable steps to verify that accreditation. And so in our process, you know, we tie in with the third party provider, we're about to bring it all in house. But every every manager that uses Real Crowd, they'll get a letter certifying that each investor that comes in, you know, has has demonstrated to you know a reasonable step uh, that they are in fact accredited. Awesome, you know, we we do a lot of those uh, accredited uh, investor letters for people, so I'm glad to hear okay. that it's a third party one, and uh, um, we won't be seeing <laughs> a ton of those. But when it comes to the sponsor side, what's your process? Can you talk a little bit about your process when it comes to vetting the sponsors? Yeah. And so that's another area of distinction that I think we've approached differently than most in the space um, in the sense that because each deal is by a unique sponsor, right? We, we are not the issue or the securities. So each deal is managed by an individual sponsor. So for us, you know, we've always taken pride in the caliber of sponsors that we work with. You're coming from the institutional real estate world. Obviously, we had a lot of relationships, but quality and caliber of sponsorship is, is really important to us. So for a sponsor to be approved, you know, we'll do full background checks. We use Thomson Reuters to, to you know, screen through all the backgrounds, foreclosures, bankruptcies, litigations, all that good stuff. Um, we'll confirm the track record. Um, we'll do reference checks. We'll look on you know, FINRA if they have any broker-dealer issues for licensing, all that stuff. So we do a pretty thorough job of making sure that the managers we're working with are reputable. You know, they, they have the track record that they, they stand behind and then meet our minimum requirements to be approved for the platform which is uh, at least 10 years of principal level experience. And so we define principal experience as having their own capital at risk in the deals and $50 million of transaction value. So that's, you know, someone that was a, you know, a manager somewhere, uh, you know, an executive somewhere. And if they've only got $25 million of acquisitions, you know, that's still not going to cut it. So we have to see that $50 million of acquisition value uh, and then at least 10 years of, of principal level experience to qualify for the platform. And then we do all those background checks on top of that. I love that. that. That's awesome. So nobody new is able to jump on your platform. You have to have the experience and you have to have pretty much a history over a decade of, of solid experience. But the cool thing is the background checks. And I, I think that I think that a lot of limited partners uh, or accredited investors that are about to be these limited partners, they don't do the thorough vetting. Of course, they can come up with mm-hmm. questions to ask. And it's, it's funny because we just talked about that too. Like, 
here are some questions that you ask the sponsor if you're an accredited investor. Do they understand taxes and accounting? And mm-hmm. if they don't, do they have a good team in place? And that's the next question you want to ask. But aside from that, you're actually vetting them, which is something that I don't think a lot of people have access to, frankly, without right. a platform like yours or even think about. And that's where it gets a little nerve wracking is because we tell people, you're not really investing in the asset. I mean, you want to look at your financial picture, right? And you want to say, okay, well, I need mobile home parks because I need the additional tax breaks, or I need these value add B class multifamily properties because that's where I think the market's going and yada, yada. But really, at the end of the day, you're investing in the sponsor and his team and his ability right. to execute. And, and if he can't, a bad sponsor can screw up a perfect deal. Right. Yeah, and I'm I'm smiling because again, folks that listen to our podcast understand that, you know you pick the jockey, not the horse, right? So much of it is manager selection, and making sure that who you're partnering with, you know, they're they're going to be there because you know quite frankly things are going to go wrong, right? And you want to be able to trust that who you're investing with has the experience, they've got the you know they 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 they're going to be a good steward of your capital, right? And a lot of that. Um, you know, early in the crowdfunding space, I, you know, we, we never did any of them, but there was a lot of activity in the single family fix and flip hard money loan space. We've seen a lot of investors that have gotten hurt by, you know, making loans to certainly, you know, whether it's subprime or not, but, you know, a husband and wife that was, they maybe flipped two or three homes in their history. Now they're getting a divorce. Now the property's in bankruptcy and, you know, sorry. So I think that, you know, manager selection is something that we've, we've always, you know, held at, at the utmost importance because, you know, for us, right, that's our reputation, right? And trust is so hard to gain in this space that, you know, we treat that as incredibly important. And I think we're, you know, we're very proud of the, the groups that we work with and, you know, how they represented their investors uh, so far in the market. When it comes to uh, the financial reporting, I know uh, various sponsors have different uh, reports they'll provide to investors. Does RealCrowd require any of this type of reporting? And if you do, what do you generally see? So we don't require any kind of reporting. And that's quite frankly, one of the things that we are, we're, we're working on addressing. And one of the challenges as an investor and, and Brandon, as we just, we just talked, was when you're investing in 10 or 15 different deals, that's 10 or 15 different systems that are probably being used for reporting, right? So we've recently partnered with a group called Investor Management Services, IMS. Um, they provide a lot of the kind of back-end, ongoing investor management, accounting, waterfall calculations, distributions, all that good stuff to help kind of standardize what that experience is like for the, the investors. But that is one of the challenges, right? And then kind of going back to what we talked about before, when you are investing in one of those aggregator platforms, that is a benefit, right? You have kind of a centralized accounting system Sometimes they'll do them in, you know, series leave LLCs to be able to consolidate K1s into kind of one master K1. So that is something that we're continuing to work on. At this stage, we don't require any specific kind of reporting. But again, you know, most of the groups that we're working with, if they've got a portfolio of 150 million of assets, right, they're going to have a system in place. They're, they're going to be pretty streamlined. And they're already managing likely anywhere from 50 to 500 investors. So they've got systems in place to do that. And then you know, the investors that come through Real Crowd can kind of just slide right in with their existing investor pool, and then you know they'll have that same kind of reporting that their other investors enjoy too. That makes a ton of sense. I mean, if you bring these people in, they have ten years of experience, they have fifty million dollars in, in assets. I mean, you would expect them at this point, in this stage of their career, to have their reporting down, right, down pat. But just quickly shifting gears, I know that, I mean this is a real estate accounting and tax podcast at the end of the day, so we have to get down to some of that boring stuff. But yeah. what would be the greatest tax advice that you ever received? 
So I was kind of dreading this question, and I, I hope my dad doesn't listen to this. So as I told Brandon on, on our show, my, my father was a, an accountant, CPA, and I think it's a bit of the, you know, the, the cobbler's son has no shoes. <laughs> I, I am terrible when it comes to taxes. You know, I think if I can kind of kind of switch the question around there, I think one of the things that we're most excited about that we're learning about, and again, we talked on, on our episode is, is opportunity zones, right? And what does that mean for investors that, you know, are maybe in a, a blown 1031 exchange, right? In, in investors that are investing through platforms like, like RealCrowd, you know, partnership interests that can't be 1031 exchange, right? How can opportunity zones augment and, and still get some of those benefits from the deferral of, of the gains and the step-ups and basis? So I think the best tax advice I've ever received is, is still yet to be received. How about that? Uh, but I think it might relate to opportunity zones. I, I, again, I think that's going to be, and I wish, I wish they had named it something different, right? I feel so punny every time I say there's a lot of opportunity here. But, um, <laughs> we say the same thing. <laughs> there's a lot of opportunity, right? Opportunity zones. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, um, you know, Brandon is, as we were talking, right, what is the, what is the right person or, or, or the right persona of the capital to invest in those opportunity zones, right? A lot of people have focused more on the, the regulatory side or, or how to comply with these opportunity zone rules. But we haven't seen a ton of focus on who is the right investor, what is the right capital profile to invest in these. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a placeholder on, on the best tax advice I've received, and, and maybe we'll come back on the show in a, in a year or two, and, and we'll, I'll be able to have an answer for you. <laughs> Fair enough. So accounting-wise, how do your sponsors, or how do you guys like hold your sponsors accountable, also not trying to be punny, sure. uh, how do you hold your sponsors accountable to proper accounting and reporting to, their, to the investors on your platform? Yeah, again, like we just kind of talked about, right? Um, there's uh, kind of an implied trust that you know they have a, a reputable operation. They've got systems in place that they're going to be providing that. And I think a lot of the stuff that we talked about on our show is some of those questions that that investors can be asking these sponsors of how they handle their accounting, how they handle that reporting. I think that's important questions to ask, and that's something we always try to advocate on behalf of our investors is ask those questions, right? Ask the tough questions, and if you don't know what those tough questions are, you know, give you guys a call find out what some of those those questions are that they can really drill down and, and get a comfort level of how they're going to be treated and what some of those systems are. Because you know once you're in a deal, you're going to be in that deal for quite some time. So you want to make sure that you're able to get comfortable with who that manager is, how they how they run their operations. Because um, it's you know these are illiquid deals, right? So you're going to be you're going to be in that relationship for some time. Always good to front load that with with you know, plenty of, of relevant and appropriate questions. Has there ever been a time where a sponsor may have like fallen behind on whatever promises related to reporting? So a lot of our general partners, a lot of our sponsors will do quarterly reporting or even monthly reporting. Has there ever been a time that you guys have had sponsors fall behind? And what do you guys do to help facilitate or, or help get them back on the ball? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think more central to that is for people that are investing in this asset class for the first time. Be prepared to file an extension. <laughs> yes, amen. Let's let's repeat that. Extensions are normal, and it's okay, <laughs> right? Um, I remember the first few years that we were doing this. You know, th- again, before we existed, people would you know their access to real estate was either through REITs, it was through buying a whole property in their in their backyard, or maybe you know a, a buddy that went to college that that had access to deals for them. So to, to now expand that and have access to deals, you know, I think we've done close to 200 deals now in, in almost 40 states. That's a really, really broad spectrum of access to opportunities. And so I think 
trying to get our investors and a lot of why we do our podcast is to try to help investors understand what is normal in this industry, right? How to think through kind of the mind of a real estate practitioner. And yeah, so early on, we had a lot of questions about, well, hey, it's, you know, it's, it's April 13. Like, when am I getting my K-1? And I think that caught people by surprise was how regularly extensions do happen in the real estate space. I would say most customary on our platform would be quarterly reporting. Sometimes we'll see monthly reporting, but most generally it's, it's quarterly reporting. And we've had a few sponsors that, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll let that slip and, and, you know, we'll get feedback from investors that maybe they haven't, they haven't heard a check-in for a while. So we'll be able to bug the sponsors and kind of remind them, you know, Hey, like, you know, what's going on with the property, but it is kind of a fine line that we, we do tow because again, we're not, uh, you know, we're not a broker dealer. We're not an investment advisor. So we, we kind of maintain a, a neutral marketplace feel to it, but we can certainly kind of, you know, give sponsors a nudge if they're, if they're falling behind on things on behalf of investors and, and remind them that there's multiple people that are kind of waiting for this update and, and check in and see kind of when those are coming. Great advice for the accredited investor. I, I, I agree that a lot of people come into these deals and don't really understand the expectations. And it's, it's something that we've even worked out on here internally at our firm too. It's, hey, we have to set really good expectations with clients. Mm-hmm. Frankly, we, we didn't do a great job of that early in 20, uh, 2018. Thomas is smiling because he can attest to it. But you have a lot of people, especially on the tax side, they've gone through two decades of schooling. They're used to meeting deadlines, right? Mm-hmm. If they miss deadlines, they lose points on their grade. And <laughs> so when you have to tell somebody that they have to file an extension, all of a sudden they're freaking out. They're like, wait, but that's missing the deadline, right? But it's right. really important to understand that if you're an accredited investor and you're in these deals, you're generally going to be filing extensions and that's okay. Right. Uh, but very good points. Let me ask you about this. So you work with a ton of sponsors, right? What do you see across the successful sponsors? Like what's that one thing or that, I don't know, that one piece of advice maybe that you would give to a sponsor to say, hey, here's where you go from being mediocre to absolutely crushing it. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's a couple different areas of that, right? As it relates to just general real estate operations, you know, again, we, we go a lot on our, on our podcast of kind of sticking to your knitting, right? If you're, if you're an expert in a market, Sure, you can look at expanding into those markets, but you know, focus on one thing and, and do it exceptionally, right? And I think that's just kind of general life advice, right? You can be okay at a lot of things, or you can specialize and be exceptional at, at one thing. You know, as it turns to to raising capital and having success on a platform when you're you're doing a campaign where you're trying to raise capital from investors out there, you know, again, it's still a relationship business, right? So the the sponsors that have been more engaged. They've been more proactive to, to reach out and answer questions. And we do webinars and, and schedule phone calls. Generally, we see that sponsors that are more engaged will tend to raise more capital. You know, they can have a, an investor, maybe it's a $25,000 minimum, and, and they see it come in at $25K. The sponsor sends them a quick note. Hey, thanks for coming on board. You know, we're excited to have you as part of our, our platform. Uh, may have a conversation and maybe that person gets comfortable and, and maybe they up that to 50 or 100 or maybe the next deal they come in. You know, we've had a couple of deals where similar thing, you know, came in at the minimum 25-50K and then a couple of deals later, they're writing a, a you know, a half a million dollar check. And so the, the relationship side of the business, you know, we never want to get away from that, right? I think what we want to do is provide tools that, that amplify that and make that more efficient and easier to engage from a relationship standpoint. But at the end of the day, you know, it's still, like I said before, it's, it's very much a relationship business. And, and I don't think we see that going away anytime soon. 
I definitely could agree with that. Um, I, I've syndicated a deal myself in the past, and certainly a relationship. The more the more deeper you could die with somebody, the more trust you're going to build with them, the more you can raise. So for the syndicators out there, build that trust with your investors. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have a huge technology platform with Real Crowd. What is your favorite piece of technology you're currently using in your business? Uh, currently, favorite piece of technology in that we're using in our business. Well. Again, not to punt this, but I think you know we're going to be announcing some some really cool tools here that that we're excited that we're building to help people understand this whole risk adjusted concept. Um, so without teasing too much, I think we'll leave it there. But current technology we're using in the business, I think one of my best productivity tools is just Fantastical. So it's it's a calendar app. I, I used to be a, a Windows guy. I've been on an iPhone for years now, and I'm using Mac. I have no idea how the heck the darn Apple Calendar works. <laughs> so, so uh, Fantastical is a really good calendar app, um, just super easy for efficiency. And just personally, you know, I was never a podcast guy. And so we started our podcast two years ago. And, and since then, uh, you know, I live in my podcast app on my, on my phone. So that's been, uh, that's been a change that, you know, anytime you're commuting or doing anything, you can just kind of zone out and pop a podcast on and uh, pass some time. It's, it's pretty, pretty good. How does Fantastical compare to Google Calendar? Uh, it ties in with it. So oh, nice. it just kind of sits up in your tray, you know, I click on that and I can just type in, uh, you know, podcast with Brandon next Tuesday at 11 with, you know, your email address and it'll just automatically set it, ties in the calendar, sends you an invite, super slick, you know, it's got an app on your phone. So you just kind of swipe over and, and tap the button it auto dials. It's a uh, very, very nice from a productivity standpoint. I highly recommend it. So before we wrap up today, would you have any final piece of advice, whether it be to um, an investor or a sponsor on, um, you know, f- from your experience in, in, in the industry? Yeah, for investors, just get started, right? Most everybody has some understanding that real estate is a good thing, right? They just haven't necessarily had access to it. Once you have access to it, you don't necessarily know how to do it right. And, and it can be intimidating, right? These are not insignificant amounts of money that we're talking about. You know, 50K, 100K, that's, that's a pretty good check to stroke. But, you know, you just got to get started, right? And a lot that we talk about on our show and, and all of our education materials is like we talked about before, um, manager selection, manager selection, manager selection, right? So much of it is is doing your research and getting comfortable with who you're partnering with uh, because that's what's ultimately, you know, that's going to drive the success of the deal, right? We've been in a really good market cycle the last uh, six, seven years. So it's been hard to lose money. You, know, you had to kind of try to lose money, I think, in, in this last cycle. But that's, you know, we're getting long in the tooth, right? You know, we're almost 10 years into the recovery. You know, will there be a, a major correction? Most signs indicate no, but will the growth slow? Uh, certainly. So I think manager selection and looking at things on a longer term horizon, especially based on where we're at in the cycle right now, is going to be pretty key for investors going forward. A lot of the kind of lower hanging fruit, kind of easy value add has been done by this part in the cycle. So, you know, we always kind of, suggest taking it things a look at things on on the longer term end of the spectrum especially as we get later in the cycle but um yeah i mean for us you know it all boils down to risk right if people can't understand the risk that they're taking to get to those returns that just sets everything up <laughs> for, for for not such a great outcome so i think you know that's our focus going forward here is is we're coming out with a lot of tools and a lot of you know education information around how to really understand the risk that you're taking to get to those returns. And, and hopefully, you know, we can help investors start looking at things on a more, um, you know, kind of risk-adjusted basis across their portfolio rather than just focusing on, you know, IRRs or equity multiples as the, you know, the main decision point when they, when they look at deals. 
Absolutely. Got to love uh, the risk-adjusted returns and you know understanding risk, very important part of investing. Um, if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you or, or your company, what would be the best way for them to do so? Uh, best way is just simply head to realcrowd.com. Uh, you can send me a note to ahooper at realcrowd.com. It's A-H-O-O-P-E-R at realcrowd.com. Uh, you know, we do the podcast. We've got an uh, educational course, realcrowduniversity.com. It's a free six-week course that's kind of the best of, of all of our content, our podcast, and, and really you kind of help set the foundation for looking at this asset class for people that might not be experts. You want to try to kind of help get them up to speed on, on how everything works. So that's probably the uh, best way to get in touch with us. All right. What's the name of the podcast, by the way? Uh, it's the Fundamentals of Commercial Real Estate Investing. Not like the greatest title, but it's got a lot of really good content on there. So if you just search for Real Crowd Podcast, uh, it should pull it up uh, either on iTunes or Google anywhere in there. Awesome. So thanks again for coming on the show today. Look forward to uh, releasing this. And um, yep, thanks again. Perfect. I appreciate it, guys. Look forward to, uh, to talking again. And uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.